And let me tell you about the California Gold Surf Auction, which is happening right now, and the bidding closes this Friday, April 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have 51 highly collectible, rare, unique, and culturally significant surfboards underneath the auction gavel. And all the action comes to a climax this Friday, April 16th, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Make sure you're there to bid and win. CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com And if you're a guitar freak like me, I got to tell you about Headstock, the Guitar Lovers Festival happening November of 2021, this November in San Diego. The first annual Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival will feature a hall brimming with stringed instruments from renowned luthers and manufacturers. The Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival, live music and killer guitars. Join me as we geek out at Headstock, November of 2021 in San Diego. I met this week's guest, Sean Young of WaveGarden, five or six years ago in Orlando, Florida, while I was moderating talks for the surf park industry. I remember being impressed with Sean's questions. He had really smart questions, the types of questions, frankly, I wish I had asked. And now Sean is working for WaveGarden as their destination development advisor. In my opinion, as a relative outsider looking in, WaveGarden seems to be one of the fastest moving wave pool companies in the space. And like all the players in this very interesting mix of personalities, Basque engineer Josema Odriozola and German sports economist Karen Frisch and the entire WaveGarden team seem to be constantly designing towards the future as if it were today. Many of you know, for years in my role as the editorial director at Surfer Magazine, my refrain to the various players in the surf park space was always, call me when it's six feet and perfect. Now, thankfully, this industry is way past that stage, and I simply say, four feet and perfect is fine by me. When can I go? On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Sean Young of WaveGarden. Let us begin. Hey, Scott, how are you? Good, buddy. Um, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing your first name correctly because I know there's an accent on the A. Is yeah. It, is it it's Sean? Sean. Yeah, okay. it's, yeah, it's an Irish name, actually. I know in America they spell it S-H-A-U-N or S-H-A-W-N, but no, it's actually an Irish name. I'm Irish myself, and the little accent is Irish. So, yeah, but it's, it's pronounced exactly the same. Okay, cool. Well, Sean Young, welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. I'm stoked to have you on here. And tell me... Um, What's going on in Spain right now regarding the pandemic? Yeah, I guess like everywhere else in the in the world, we're in sort of semi-shutdown, lockdown. So we're all confined to our specific regions and locations, but we can travel, we can surf, we can do exercise, we can go out. There's a bit of a curfew in terms of how late bars and restaurants are allowed to open too. But, um, you know, things are slowly starting to opening, open up. Um, we were hoping that for Easter, maybe we could travel outside of our immediate sort of state. But no, that's still being uh, withheld. So the surf beaches are packed, as you can imagine, uh, the local beaches, because people can't travel any further afield to get their surf. But uh, no, thankfully, we're, we're OK. And 
we're at the office. I'm not wearing a mask now because I'm on my own, but when we're in the office or in a room with anyone else, everyone's wearing masks and taking precautions. And what about the vaccination situation? Is Spain getting um, their allotment? Yeah, yes and no. To be honest, I think the EU has messed up a little bit. The EU said we will take control of vaccinations for all of our member states, and uh, which didn't allow the individual countries to sort of go out and do separate deals with other countries and with the the pharmaceutical companies to purchase it themselves. And so it's a little bit slow, but it is getting there. My my wife is Spanish, and obviously my mother-in-law is Spanish, and she's due to get her vaccination very soon. But who knows when it'll be, you know, when, when it'll be my turn. It could be several months still. Yeah, well, gosh, I hope, I hope it happens quickly. Um, we're sort of ramping up here in the United States, and it, it feels pretty nice. And I, I wish you the, seem to be better off there. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I hope that that happens for you guys soon, because um, it certainly feels nice to be a little bit more liberated here. Yeah, um, yeah certainly. Sean, you are the Destination Development Advisor to WaveGarden. That's what I read on your LinkedIn. Um, that's a pretty cool title. Tell me exactly what is it that you do there as the Destination Development sure. Advisor? Yeah, sure. So I joined WaveGarden about three and a half years ago. Um, but before then, I basically was a Destination Development Advisor. I had my own consultancy company based in the UK. And uh, for 20 plus years, I traveled around the world advising on all types of leisure real estate development, theme parks, water parks, museums, attractions, uh, hospitality developments, resorts, you name it, anywhere that was, you know, drawing people to a place and trying to attract footfall and spend. That's where I specialized. And uh, I started working on surf park projects, um, probably in 2009, 10, probably I started to see that there was a market here. And as an advisor, I wanted to know a little bit about it. And I ended up working on many, many wave garden related projects. I worked on a Kelly Slater's project. I worked on a surf lock project as an independent advisor as such to the developers. And, uh, but now since joining wave garden, basically I'm, I've brought that experience in house and then built up a team within wave garden, um, which is responsible for, giving all of the advice and support that's needed to our partners in that early design, feasibility, permitting, engineering, fundraising phase, up to the point that they're ready to start uh, construction. So I'm you know, head of development projects and a destination advisor. And we now, because we're such a large company and we're growing so quickly, we now can move our projects through that feasibility and planning phase much more quickly than we could five years ago, for example. It seems to me that that might give you guys a leg up, WaveGarden. I mean, and I can't speak for the other uh, companies, but the fact that you come in experienced already and you really are like, look, here's what needs to take place for us to get moving, you know, X, Y, and Z. Here's the equation. Do you think that that's the case, that WaveGarden has a leg up because of your expertise? Um, well, it's obviously not just mine, um, but I do think so. I mean, we've noticed a significant shift in the speed at which we can now take projects from first contact with us through to ready to start construction. I mean, a great example probably is uh, Steve in Birmingham in the UK, from the first contact with him through to when he had full permits and he 
in theory could start construction, although he's still finalizing his funding, was less than 18 months. So that process was taking three years before, without a doubt. And because we've now done it so many times and we have put the people in place, we've got a design team, we have a civil engineering team, uh, we have a water treatment team, we have the electrics team. We can do almost every aspect of the surf experience within, uh, within a surf park. Not just the wave-making technology, the wave-making technology, the water treatment, and the civil engineering and construction of the lagoon, which, to be frank with you, that can be the most significant challenge in the process is the actual construction of the lagoon itself. That's interesting to me because um, certainly on the physical side of the equation, that makes sense. I, I also look at it like I imagine, Sean, you and your team are sitting back in your office and you might envision like the perfect candidate that, that calls you on the phone. And I mean, from a nation state standpoint, I imagine it's difficult or obviously more difficult in some nation states than another. For instance, and I'm just going to throw this out and hopefully get some feedback from you. But if 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 a communist state like, say, China calls you up, mm-hmm. you're probably going great. There's not going to be any problem with permits. This nation state's ready to roll. They've got yeah. tons of money, tons of backing. I mean, is it this? What's the perfect um, sort of geopolitical situation for you? Uh, actually, what we say to most people is that it's a combination of, of three things. So it's the right team to begin with, and it's really down to the individuals. So are there, do they have the right mix of experience uh, between the team, motivation? Uh, do they have the time <laughs> that they, this is going to take? Because many underestimate how long a process it can be. So if you've got a right group of individuals, preferably someone with some background in finance and investment, another individual with a background in real estate and development, and then possibly an individual with some form of background in, in leisure or operations or hospitality or something like that. That's sort of the, the, you know, the best combination of those three. Then it's finding the right piece of land. And then with the land, it comes with a couple of different things. A, is it affordable? Because these, you know, this is a large piece of land, potentially, depending on the scale of project you go for. And if you try and buy that land on, on normal commercial terms, i.e. if that land could be used for housing, it's just going to be too expensive to buy to do leisure. So you need to find the right piece of land that can be developed for leisure, sports, entertainment type use, as opposed to pure commercial residential type use. Uh, and then finally... Is the land itself good? I mean, what's the topography like? What's the soil conditions are like? And where's the water table beneath that land? Because that, that's probably the single most costly item uh, in your surf park development is if you have a high water table, suddenly all of the, the soil improvements and the infrastructure below the lagoon becomes more expensive because not only are you concerned about holding the water in the lagoon itself from above, but you're trying to stop water pushing up underneath from below into the bottom of the lagoon. And it can have an impact on the type of solution you have and so on. So if you get, you know, right piece of land, you've got a good team. And then the third thing we say is, and this will sound a little bit strange. It's not about, do you have the money to do the project? It's, do you have the money for the next 12 to 18 months? Do you have what we would call the seed funding? Do you have half a million dollars to a million dollars? 
because that's typically what you're going to have to spend on the consultancy process, the design process, the permitting, the environmentals, and so on, over a 12 to 18 month period to get you to where you have, okay, I've got my business plan, I've got my design, I've got my initial project approval, I've got my good estimate of cost and, and engineering, and I've now got the whole package and I'm ready to go and start raising the 20, 30 million dollars, whatever you need to deliver the whole surf park. And so uh, we have seen that actually getting the seed funding can be more difficult than raising the millions to deliver the park because the risks are still very high at that early stage when you're, when you're going through uh, feasibility and planning. But you didn't answer my question. I'm wondering if there's a geo. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John, I, I was hoping you wouldn't. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> You've and been I doing this for a while. <laughs> I understand if you did, if you can. Yeah. But it yeah, seems yeah. to me that, you know, regarding the permits and all of the, I don't want to say headaches, but just the, the stuff that you have to go through in yeah. a normal geopolitical situation, is sort of alleviated if somebody like China or somebody, a nation state that just is, you know. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, what's the I mean, perfect situation? Like, like you must have like a plan for like there must be, you know, you guys sit around and you go, God, it'd be great if if somebody calls and they're from X, Y, and Z country and they've you know they've got this lined up. Like, or is that just is it maybe well, more yeah, what you were saying earlier? Yeah, it's it's the challenge with with some of those countries where you can imagine permitting can move quickly because it's a bit fast and loose. That can also come with a bit of a challenge in that they may well also be fast and loose in terms of our IP, in terms of, you know, how do we protect ourselves and, yeah. and so on. So I, you know, to be honest with you, yes, some countries have a longer permitting process than others. Some States, if you do a project in California, it's going to take you a bit longer than if you do it in, in uh, South Carolina, where we're doing Merkle beach, for example, it can take longer, but you know, we, with regards to China, you know, our concern there is actually not so much about, permitting it's about how do we protect ourselves uh, mm. in terms of because what's you know what's really unusual i think and what's quite special about wave garden is that every single component of our wave making technology is ours right. it's not none of it is off the shelf you know every single component has been designed and tested and it's manufactured here by ourselves and then we ship it out we install it we make sure it's all working we hand over and then we maintain it so every component is is quite sensitive and we want to protect it and we need to be protected because we believe obviously that we have you know the best way and the most efficient way of making high quality waves and that's taken 12 years of r&d to get here you know well let's talk a little bit about technology so um i know uh, in for, you know please uh, step in when I butcher this, but it's my understanding that, you know, we started with a plow technology and now we're sort of in an air compression technology. Where are we at with WaveGarden's technology? Sure. Um, so WaveGarden started in 2005, a family business. Um, Josema Odriazola and his wife, Karen Frisch, uh, started. They used to do uh, skate parks. In fact, their background was designing and delivering skate parks in Spain. Um, but both very, very passionate surfers, uh, two young children that are excellent groms as well. And uh, that's their life. You know, surfing is their absolute life. And they said, well, you know, could we not deliver surf parks in the same way that we deliver uh, skate parks? And, and that started a journey. Hossem himself as an engineer, uh, trained engineer, I started a journey. And in fact, the first prototype 
know, it was way before my time in 2006, was a circular wave, the never-ending wave that could go round and round, as most people think that would be ideal. Could you imagine getting on a ride and it never ends because you're continuing going round and round? And, you know, very quickly, within less than nine, 12 months, it was apparent that that type of approach would require such a large-scale lagoon to deal with the currents that build up and such a huge amount of water and a huge amount of energy and so on. So we quickly moved on. And that with, then we moved to what we call the foil technology, but plow. And by 2009, we had the first working uh, plow or, fo or foil, which was just going one way and it was just uh, a left, I think. And uh, Gabriel Medina and other people came in and there was some small videos and people started to hear whispers about WaveGarden. In fact, that's the time that I heard about them then. But very quickly by 2011, I think we had a bi-directional plow. So basically you put lefts and rights, you run the whole way down one end of the lagoon, and then you can run the whole way back at the same time. And it was that technology that then was acquired. And in fact, I introduced the first client to Wave Garden, which is uh, Snowdonia, Andy Ainsco. Andy was my client. I was advising him on what leisure development he could possibly do on that site that his family owned. And at the time, he was thinking about a whitewater rafting facility. And I just heard about this new surf technology. And I said, well, Andy, maybe it's worth looking at something different that would be completely unique in the UK. And we came out and we visited and sort of that was how I got to know Wave Garden and the relationship built from there. And Andy took that in and delivered that in Surf Snowdonia. And that was two waves every 90 seconds, every, every two minutes. And very quickly, we saw how successful it was in terms of demand that we realized quite quickly that this technology is going to, it needs to improve. We need to increase capacity Two ways every two minutes is, is great, and it's certainly better than anything else that was around at the time. But innovation and change is in the DNA of, of WaveGarden, without a doubt, and that's driven by Hosema. So they're always thinking about, okay, well, what next? And so we delivered uh, Surf Nodonia, then we delivered Inland, which I think you've surfed, I've heard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's more or less the same, a bit longer than, than Surf Nodonia. And it has the same issues of two waves every two minutes or so. So, you know, you can't get the capacity. And the wave itself is more or less the same wave over and over again. You can slow it down and speed it up, but you don't have the same flexibility to change its shape too much. Um, so Josema was already moving on in his mind to, okay, well, what's next? And that then came the cove. And the good thing is, I guess, People actually still don't know how the cove works, and that's probably the way we want it. It's it's good. Uh, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you uh, <laughs> if I did, you know, type of thing. But um, no, what the, the key point, um, Scott, is that it's electromechanical. Huh. So nothing to do with air. It's not pneumatic at all. So it's not an off-the-shelf air system that pushes. It's basically uh, electric motors that push mechanical panels uh, and it's modular. And the more of these uh, modules you have, the longer the wave. And in the same way, I suppose, a pneumatic system works and pushes uh, air into the water to create the, uh, the wave and, and change its shape. Ours does exactly the same, but, but we don't have air. We're extracting that component of air out of the process. So it's electromechanical. That means it's incredibly efficient. It's like the difference between an electric car and a, 
you know, on a diesel or, or gas, uh, gasoline car. So you and have it these... means it's incredibly precise as well because you don't have a third element of air to deal with. And so, yeah, how big are these? Ahead. How big are these panels? Well, if you've have you you haven't been to a coal facility, have no, you? No, no. Okay, you've seen some videos of um, Bristol yeah. and Melbourne and Korea and so on. Yeah. So basically, the length of that central pier in our lagoon. The longer that pier is, the more panels we have. And so, for example, in Bristol, we have 40 modules, we call them. In, uh, in Melbourne, we have 46 modules. And in Korea, we have 56 modules. And so these modules can fire at different times with different uh, forces to create all types of shapes and, and waves. So you could fire it softly at the beginning with to give you a soft takeoff and then fire the, re- the middle modules in a different way to create a strong barrel and then fire modules towards the end to create an aerial. So we have full flexibility in how wow. we move and shape these modules and it's incredibly precise. And what's important is it's also quite easy for, adjust- for us to adjust the peeling speed, which is slightly more difficult to do as we understand it with a pneumatic system or an air system. So we've got the, the combination, the benefits of, Moving these modules to create all types of shades, we've got a menu of about 28 different types of waves or so. In most of our commercial installations, we leave 20, 24 different types of waves uh, on the standard menu. And, uh, but we can adjust the peeling speed as well. So you can slow it down, speed it up. The angles can be adjusted. So we can, it's really quite fun playing with them. You know, we have what we call our wave DJs and they can <laughs> do the do the play playlist for, for that particular session and change it around. And uh, it's proving to be incredibly successful. And uh, I think it's, it's because it's electric, that's probably one of the huge USPs that we have. And, you know, our energy on average is about 10 times less energy required to run our system for an hour than the, the equivalent system using a pneumatic technology. So that, that's really big news. And uh, it's one of our, our USPs. Yeah, I was going to say, as much as the waves themselves are fascinating, when I come to you and sit down and say, hey, I'm interested in creating a project, as fascinating to me is, you know, what's my cost per wave? And it sounds like from your end, you love to tell that story just as much as how great the modules are. You know, like, yeah. you know what? This thing is cost effective. Yeah, I think interesting. There is a perception uh, in the general public that a surf park is not sustainable. So um, we're actually fighting that because our facilities are incredibly uh, sustainable. So, for example, to run one of our top, top, you've seen what we call the beast wave and beast mode in Melbourne. It's called it's a really heavy barreling wave. And to be honest with you, you need to be a really high end surfer to be to be comfortable in that, in that wave. And it's yeah. pretty heavy and, and so on. So, so that's a very powerful wave. It's, you know, two meters high and very thick uh, barrel. And um, to yeah. run that session and to run three to 400 of those waves in an hour. So you've got, let's say 30 or 40 guys, they all get at least 10, 10 waves, 10, 11 waves each in their session that they're out in that part of the lagoon. That's gonna cost you about 400 kilowatts an hour. So to put that in perspective, that is about a half or a third of a single chairlift in a ski resort, the right. amount of energy it uses. Okay. So, and if your cost per kilowatt is 10 cents, in probably in California it's more, but it is, yeah. you're talking about $40 an hour to run your system. <laughs> wow. So 
one surfer has covered the cost. So that's incredible, you know, and that's really a huge benefit in terms of not only is it, hey, this is really good for the environment because it's a, an electromechanical way of, you know, of making waves, but it's also very good for your bottom line because your operational costs are, are you know, really, really low when it comes to energy. And then on the sustainability thing, it's also worth talking about water because when you hear a surf park, what do people think? Oh, oh my God, lots of water. So our largest lagoon takes around about 7 million gallons uh, of, of water. And in, an annu- in a year, in terms of evaporation and so on, you're probably looking at around about 13, 14, 15 million gall- uh, gallons of water required. And our water treatment system is very efficient. We don't lose backwash through the filters or anything like that. So do you imagine if you, what 15 million gallons of water is, if you put that in perspective, it's probably about two holes of a golf course. I mean, in the US, the average consumption of a golf course is well over 100 million gallons of water a year. And we're looking at around about 14 or 15. I'm an avid Again, golfer. When you make so that story. I'm an avid golfer, so I need you to like move away from that <laughs> oh, metaphor. <sorry. laughs> no, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, Sean, yeah. Go ahead. So, but well, when you make that message, suddenly the concerns re- uh, regarding sustainability, energy, power, and, and water disappear. And then the issues become more about okay, how do we make this happen? And so on. Uh, So, yeah. So, I mean, we think we're moving in the right direction. We think the surf industry as a whole will also follow and move in that direction and will become more and more sustainable over time as, as we all learn from each other and improve. So I do think that we'll be able to get past concerns that people may have uh, from an environmental sustainability standpoint. So this technology, this, this, electric motors module technology what's the what's the right phrase i'm probably butchering it no that's fine that's fine i mean we call it electromechanical system Electri- but you know, yeah, no, electromech- yeah so nobody else has this it's either the foil slash plow or what awm has which is the compressed pneumatic. air the pneumatic yeah. and then you guys right. have this electrical uh, module Correct. system Correct. Um, so we have we're not basic- aware of anyone that is doing something similar as yet. It's it's obviously very possible that others are exploring that yeah. approach, and and that will be good to be honest, because it'll you know obviously help with that sustainability message. But uh, yeah, I mean the plow system. We had moved on from the plow by the time Kelly decided that the circular wave was not going to be possible. He you know he spent a lot more time thinking and investigating the circular wave idea, because it is the sort of the dream, isn't it? A never ending wave. Uh, but I think after a number of years, he realized and he had seen the foil technology starting to work. And then he just took that idea, uh, which was absolutely fine, and scaled it up, you know, and just made it bigger and put a train on top that's moving the larger foil through the water. And, uh, and you know, to be by then anyway, we had moved on and the cove we thought, I mean, because... Our approach has always been about maximum number of waves, variety of waves, and capacity, as many surfers as we can, to make these things as affordable and economically viable as possible. Uh, Of course, you can install our facility in private resorts, and people are doing that, and we're working on a number of projects. But we also want these things to work as just a standalone surf park attraction business and make a good return on investment 
to give access to waves and share the passion we have with as many people as possible. So, you know, the foil is there, the pneumatic is there, you know, Tom Lodgefeld is using pneumatic and huge respect for him and all of the work. And, and uh, you know, he's one of the pioneers as well. I'd love to see him and Hosema in a room chatting for an hour and so on. It would be might great. Be a f- it might be a fist fight. No, no, I don't think so. I, I honestly think there's good respect there, which is good. And I know Tom myself personally. Yeah. I've met him a couple of times and he's a great guy. And yeah. so we have respect for anyone that sure. is on this journey of trying to, you know, explore and, and come up with new ideas. And yeah, so they're using pneumatic. And then obviously there is Aaron Travis in, who I've never met myself personally at Surf Lakes. And, you know, great kudos to them. They've gone in a completely different direction. And uh, it's, a, it's an exciting one. And I like, again, the circular lagoon, but it, you know, it obviously has its significant challenges itself. Uh, and it's a very different approach. But, um, you know, the more people that start seeing that these things are potentially viable and there's a market for them and there's enthusiasm and the quality of the surf experience is as good, if not better, than what you can get in the ocean for 80% of the year type of thing, then... I think the more people will enter the market and, and try and uh, come up with new ways of, of making waves. What would you care? How would you characterize Surflakes as a plunger technology? We've got pneumatic, we've got plow slash foil. And would you say that's plunger? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like dropping a big stone in the center of the circle and then the, the waves ripple out. Um, I think, you know, without, uh, we don't want to be criticizing on, uh, and no. so on and everyone. And particularly, we really like what Aaron's been doing and he's a true visionary himself and, yeah. and so on. I think the challenges when we looked at that type of approach, the challenges were that uh, the size of lagoon required the depth, the depth of the lagoon. You have to go to like 10 or 11 meters deep in the center, whereas most of you know our lagoons are no more. You know, the deepest water point is like three meters type of yeah. thing. And that means that, the, you know, the find a piece of land that's going to be right for that and to build a lagoon that's going to be strong enough uh, for that. And then the only slight concern we have about, and we had it about the foil technology, and it also applies to something like that that isn't mod- modular, is that there's a single point of failure. If one thing breaks, the whole thing has to shut down. So that was, a, to be honest, there were several reasons why we moved on from the, the plow but that was one of them. When something breaks, the whole thing has to stop and it has to be fixed. Whereas with a modular system, because you've got 56 modules, if for some reason you have a little issue with one of the modules, you can still make perfect waves with the other 55 modules. You'd never have to stop making yeah. waves. And we've been operating at over 99% availability of our machinery in all of our uh, uh, operational uh, attractions at the moment. Melbourne was operating 16 hours a day, nonstop. Um, so that modular approach is also is less risky, I guess, in, in terms of it's very robust. Can the modular system, and I'm sure this has to do more with the size of the, the pool itself, but I'm looking for a larger wave, Sean. Can you get me an eight-foot wave, like a legitimate eight-foot wave, and and have it pencil out? Like if I come to you as as a potential client, you know, I know you can probably build it, but does it yeah. make business sense? Yeah. So the answer is, can you have it? Of course, yes, you can. The answer is, will it be economically viable, and will it be? Will you be able to say that this is a sustainable approach to surf park development? The answer is likely to be no. And the reason, the reason is 
that it's not just, oh, I need to increase the wave by another two feet. Therefore, it's only going to be, you know, two more feet on top of six feet, another third of the sort of cost and power. No, it's, it's much more than that. You're going to have to probably double, if not even more, the power to get from six feet to eight feet. And then the bigger the lagoon, the deeper the lagoon, the more water you have. And what percentage of your surfers are actually going to surf that? And I must point out, and this is important as well, the reason that we have a continuing pier going down the middle of our cove, I mean, we have other designs, but in the design that's been taken up most, uh, most often and being delivered, the cove system, the pier down the middle means that we are putting power into the wave the entire time it's traveling down the lagoon. So you're maintaining that six foot height for the entire length of our machine building. Whereas in other systems where you're putting all of the power in from the back of the lagoon, then you might get a seven or eight foot wave at the back, but very quickly it dissipates in size. If you've been to Typhoon Lagoon, exactly. the, take, yeah. the takeoff is up here, but within two seconds, the wave is half the size that it was. Now, yeah. I'm not saying that that's happening other places, but it is something to keep in mind. So to sustain an eight foot high wave for a 16 second ride, most of our most of our surf parks, you're getting a 14 or 15, 16 second ride on the main wave. And then the wave breaks again in the bays for beginners and improvers. But to maintain that is a lot of power and a lot of water and so on. But it's possible. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I, uh, you and I met at the, um, I believe in Orlando at the Surf Park yeah. Summit in Orlando. That was, I don't know, maybe 2015 or something like that. And at the time, I mentioned to those guys, I said, what you guys need to start right away is a surf or a wave pool industry hall of fame. Mm. And, and in my opinion, the first guy that should be inducted into that hall of fame is Andy Ainscoff from Surf yeah. Smedonia, because this yeah. was a guy who was first to market. And that takes a lot of balls. And I mean, this guy had a, this family land and this family business. And he's like, I don't know, let's, I mean, he kind of just rolled the dice. Who do you think um, should be the first one inducted into the Wave Pool Hall of Fame? Well, I agree with you on Andy. And it's, it's not just Andy. It's Andy and his dad, Martin. And uh, as I said, they were, they were clients of mine. I was working in the UK. I had my consultancy business and someone recommended me to them. And I went and I met the board. Year, that would have been in 2010 or 11 or something like that. And, uh, you know, I was giving him a presentation on the leisure market in the UK and new types of attractions. And I said, oh, and by the way, I've, I've just seen this new thing called Wave Garden. It's very interesting. I've been to visit it once. I think they're, you know, I think we should look into it. And um, so I've known those guys for a long time. And really, it was Martin, the father and Andy, the son that together, you know, flew out. I was with them. I traveled with them when they came out to visit Wave Garden for the first time. They tested the, the, the plow wave that we had. They absolutely loved it. And within three months, they'd signed a contract to want to go ahead. There was no messing about. I think there were a number of circumstances came together there quite nicely and that the site that they had couldn't be used for anything else other than leisure. It had to really be a leisure educational sports type. They couldn't build housing on it or offices or retail or anything. So that was pushing them in that direction anyway. And I very quickly told them about the cost of a whitewater rafting center and the low capacities and, and so on. So they, they bought into it and you're right. They just said, yeah, we're ready to do this. We're going to be brave. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, Andy himself, his background, he was in he, he was in the army and trained in the what the equivalent of the Marines for a while, and then was a rugby league player. You have to be tough to do those things. So yeah, yeah. he uh, <laughs> he's a great guy, really nice guy, and his father as well. So it was really fun working with them and getting the first project off the ground. You know what's interesting to me about about his situation there is that first of all, it's it's kind of Wave Garden 1.0. It's the very it first iteration, mm. more or less, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and when I went to Inland in Texas, in Austin, Texas, um, I thought to myself, well, the technology is is moving so quickly that this almost seems a little bit obsolete. Mm. And 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 at first, I thought maybe Andy's sort of stuck in the same situation at Surf Snowdonia that it's just it's still 1.0 and the technology's bypassed them. But he has a very aspirational population base, and that way, and, and fill me in where I'm wrong here. But it seems like that plow system is perfect for these aspirational surfers. Yeah, I mean, I originally did the business plan for that project, so I did all of the market projections and the user forecasts, and we studied that and, and so on. And our original strategy, which Andy and Martin were completely on board with, was that we need to create a destination. It's not just about surf. This is a destination within the center of Snowdonia. Snowdonia National Park is a beautiful part of the world. There's huge numbers of other activities to do there around that place. And we were very strong on the potential that we need to have accommodation on this site eventually. And so in our first phase, we did some surf pods beside the lagoon. And now they've finished construction of their hotel. They've built a full-scale indoor adventure facility uh, center next to it. So even if the technology has moved on elsewhere with regards to the cove now being in Bristol and going to Birmingham and we're going to go to London and so on, it really isn't that important because it is Adventure Park Snowdonia. They've got a series of things to see and do and go down and short breaks is a big part of it. And as you're right, the majority of surfers in the UK are what, Californians would describe as intermediate level. Maybe in the UK, we'd we'd describe ourselves as advanced, but actually it's more sort of intermediate level. So that wave is great fun for an intermediate level surfer. You can improve, you can have fun. And then when you're having a whole weekend where you can do some surfing, you can do some indoor adventure stuff. They got their adventure activity, obstacle course, lagoon as well. And then you can go uh, skydiving or uh, climbing and other things over a weekend. I think his business is they're here to stay, even if there are going to be three or four other cove projects that, you know, in theory, provide a better surfing experience because he is a destination. And that's always been his long term view and strategy for there. And, w- and what about Doug Coors? Was Doug Coors in a situation where he's like, hey, um, is it Jose there? Jose? Josema. Josema. Hey, Josema, I need an upgrade, man. My tech is being bypassed. Um, was that something that was built into the contract, this idea? Because obviously that would mean a massive retrofit. Yeah. No, no, there was nothing in because actually when we signed the contract, the cove wasn't a reality. Even the early stages, we only started working on that probably just after Inland opened um, because we were seeing that the demand was there. I mean, the, these parks were busy. Snowdonia was busy and then Inland was busy. But we, we said, is there a way of getting more waves with more variety so we can get many more surfers at the same time? Um, with Doug, I mean, I don't know the full story. I met Doug a couple of times myself. Um, I don't know the full story, but it was very much 
you know, something very unusual for that family, the Coors family to be doing it. What yeah. absolutely was not their core business. Right. So I he, think once he said it was a vanity the, project, not vanity. No, I think, no, he was a personal, passionate surfer. He loved to, you know, he, he loved to surf and yeah. uh, he thought, Hey, this would be a great way to spend uh, some of my time and, and efforts in a, in a new venture. That's going to be exciting. And also I get to surf in Texas, which, you know, yeah. So I think, you know, I think that's what it was. And, yeah. um, but I think the family as a whole were like, hey, this is really isn't our core business. And at the mm-hmm. time, WSL probably, as you know, we're looking for a site. And the huge advantage in, in the US of that site is here we had a site with the right permits and with water. So yeah. if you wanted to do a, another Kelly system uh, for the WSL, you wanted to do it in Texas, well, you know, so I imagine they made them an offer that was an attractive offer and, 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 and they've sure. taken over. I don't know what's happened. I, just, I honestly personally don't know whether they are now retrofitting it. It's been uh, destroyed. The, the pool's been completely destroyed. The, the foundation, the yeah. basin has been taken away and it's just sitting there because of mostly because of what's happened with the whole oh, global. Yeah. 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 Um, your IP, you, you mentioned intellectual property. Um, is it, I, I imagine it's both hardware and software, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, I guess one of my questions, and I think you've already answered it really, is like, is everybody hiding the same secret? <laughs> it felt like for a little while, probably especially when it was just plow technology, although Bruce at AWM was using a pneumatic system. Yes. Um, it seemed like everyone was... Like, it, well, let, let me phrase the question like this. How paranoid and how secretive is this industry? Um, Wave Garden is quite paranoid, uh, I have to say. Uh, but that is, you have to really understand, this is a company that started with five, you know, four or five people in 2005 and didn't make a single penny of income until 2015, wow. really. Yeah. So that's 10 years of people's life and investment and risks in research and development. We're now at 65 to 70 people delivering. We now have you know, financially contracted 51 projects around the world. And as I said, ours is quite unique in that it is a complete bespoke wave garden design. Every single component of ours is wave gardens, including a specialist water treatment system just for our lagoons. So we have to be protective of that. It's not like we can go and buy the blowers off the shelf, you know, that pneumatic system, obviously there's huge IP in the work that Bruce and Tom and others have done in terms of the software and maybe their bathymetry and their particular shape of bathymetry they'll want to protect. But the the actual blowers themselves that make the way those you just buy off the shelf and you put them in and maybe you install them in a different way and in a different sequence and so on and all of that maybe. But the actual uh, system that makes the waves for us is ours as well. So therefore we are quite protective of that. And it's good. It's sort of good for us when we hear people ex- describing our system as something which we know it isn't. And uh, that, that's <laughs> fine. But at the end of the day, you know, we know that people people will see it, but will people be willing to spend probably, okay, it took us, you know, 10 years overall to get to the cove. Maybe people can do it in five years, but five years is still a long time. So do your, you know, do your feathers get ruffled a little bit when you 
when you hear about a new wave pool in China and you say to yourself, man, how did, how did they get our technology? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if that's happened yet, but that's yeah. got to be a concern. That it, yeah, it's a concern. They don't have it. And I think whereas the, pl the plow technology was obvious yeah, exactly. uh, and it's easy to replicate and China did. China, I, I'm, I can imagine that Kelly was upset when he saw the China thing came out because it yeah. looked just like his, but on a slightly smaller scale. Yeah. Um, the cove is going to be much more difficult to replicate. Right. And, uh, and that's why I don't really get into any great detail about, sure. about how it works. Yeah. Well, I respect that. I'm sure your NDAs are like, um, you know, as thick as the Bible. But um, let me ask you this. Let's say uh, hypothetically I pull the trigger. I say, Sean, I'm, I'm interested. I, I want to do this. And you go, great. We have all the proprietary stuff. You got to, you know, you buy this full package from us. And I still have to obviously subcontract out the, the cement, right? I have to lay the foundation. But you come in and do the tech on how deep it needs to be. But we subcontract yeah. at that level, obviously. Yeah. So um, part of my role when I joined WaveGarden three and a half years ago was to put this team together in that sort of planning phase process and make sure that we can help people on the journey. So in addition to building a, a team in-house, we use a number, we have three international engineering companies that we work with on an exclusive basis. So for example, in the United States, we, we have an exclusive contract in place with a company called Kaufman. They're great guys. They're licensed in every state in the United States. So they are the ones that we work with on the specific design and engineering solution for each of our lagoons. And we really get into great detail in terms of soil improvements and how much concrete and is it concrete and liner or is it all concrete or all liner combination of the two. And then they will deliver the construction drawings using with their stamps because they're licensed and stamped in each of the states based on our IP and so on. So we share fully our IP with them. So the engineering, we sort of still keep some level of control of that because we have this exclusive relationship with an engineering partner like like Kaufman. But at the end of the day, you're right. A contractor needs to come in and construct the lagoon based on the construction plans that WaveGarden and Kaufman have delivered. And, and that's fine. And, and, and at the end of the day, we understand that. However, we, WaveGarden, send out a team and oversee the installation of the wave making machinery, our machinery, and the water treatment system. And then we test it dry without water. Then we fill the lagoon. We test it for months. And then we eventually, once we've proven that we're delivering as many ways as we said we would, nonstop, it has to you know, run so many hours nonstop and show that it's working, we then hand it over. But we maintain a relationship where we're providing prevent, uh, preventative maintenance. One of our guys stays on site for 12 months after opening training all of the staff and make sure the maintenance is being done properly. Uh, we help with operational setup in terms of the surf side of things, train the lifeguards and the surf instructors. This is how best to manage people in the water based on our types of ways and this different type. This is what an intermediate session should look like. This is an advanced session. This is an expert session and so on. But at the end of the day, you're right in that, yes, we don't, obviously we want construction to be done by local contractors and local companies and get the best uh, bids from them uh, to do that. But we do retain some level of control over that. And we weren't doing that before. So when we when the lagoon was constructed in inland, 
we weren't really involved in the construction of the lagoon. We were delivering the water treatment, the, the, the wave technology system. And then we realized, we, well, actually, the construction of the lagoon is very important. Things can go wrong. How do we learn more about that? How can we be sure that we're consistent with the quality of that? Because it's, it's, the, it's the biggest single price point, potentially, uh, the construction of the lagoon. So we've now learned more about that. We've now delivered a number of lagoons. We're working on the engineering designs of 20 or 30 different lagoons. So that's helping our process. And we're helping, I think, our, our, our facilities to be more robust and hopefully will last longer as well. Thinking back to Inland, I'm, 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 I have a recollection that, that I believe they had a problem with the quality of their water. Of course, we know Waco did. Was it at that point, and I'm not sure if you were even with WaveGarden at that time, but was it at that point that, you, that, um, that I, and I'm going to butcher his name, but it's um, Hosemel? Hosema. Hosema. Yeah, was it at Hosema. that point that Hosema said, hey, by the way, we need to start developing water treatment 100%. facilities? 100%. So Surf Snowdonia and uh, Inland didn't have any water treatment system that was created by us. It was brought in by others. And we began to realize that, hey, you can't use convention. You can use parts of conventional water treatment system, but you need to uh, design the lagoon slightly differently. And, you, you know, you can't have normal skimmers and, and, and so on. You have to change things around to reflect the fact that you've got periods where you're making two meter high, you know, six foot waves and other periods where it's completely calm and the water treatment system needs to work during both periods. And so we invested another four years. Uh, we have a full-time water treatment uh, team here that probably have 40 or 50 years of experience between them. And now we have a bespoke water treatment system, which actually is ending up costing an awful lot less than buying something and try to retrofit it to a, to a, a surf. I was just going to say, is that a standalone business? It seems like that could be something that you guys sell in and of itself to a certain Facilities. Well, we don't we don't do that as yet. That's a possibility. We don't do it as yet, but it's certainly a possibility. We package it up at the moment within right. with our with our wave technology. But uh, yes, that's certainly uh, an option. And uh, the idea, remember as well, the idea of crystal clear water. You know, that's sort of that's a whole part of the the experience, isn't it? And one of the things about our system is we don't have to use a lot of chlorine. So you're not in a pool. There's no smell of chlorine on your skin or on your hands like you get in a swimming pool or in a water park. So that's nice. It really just feels like fresh drinking water. And the waves, I don't know if you, I think until you surf a cove, you won't quite realize it is as close as you can possibly get to an ocean experience because you paddle out in a pretty wide, deep channel. That's like yeah. a rip. You yeah. sit up on your board very casually waiting just like, and you can see the break next to you. You're not struggling to stay in position because there's currents moving you around or you're not standing holding your board uh, like, like you can do in other places waiting for your turn. No, you're sitting in a deep channel. You're chatting to your friend beside you. And then when it's your turn, you just paddle in nicely. You take off and you go. So that combination with perfect crystal clear water, it just feels, I mean, we had a staff surf session today oh. an hour and a half ago. And uh, it's just the best. I mean, it's great fun. You know, it's so it much really fun. Is. You know, we've got, we've got a company where everyone, almost everyone's passionate surfers and lots of young guys that surf really early in the morning before they come to work. And anytime there's a staff surf session, they still want to jump into the cove, even if it's only for 20 minutes and catch 10 waves in 20 minutes and then back to work type of thing. So, you know, it's just great. 
That is awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fun place to work. Uh, well, good for you guys, too. Um, let me ask you about this, uh, the Olympics. Um, mm. We've got the Olympics in Japan. They have one of Bruce's American Wave Machines over there. Um, Los Angeles is coming up. Um, we're not sure what's going to happen in the desert, but if certainly they have Kelly's Wave and Lamore. I doubt greatly that they're going to use a wave pool. Then we go to Paris in eight years, seven years. Do you anticipate, first of all, frankly, the waves in Japan, if we have the beauty of hindsight right now, the waves in Japan during the, the uh, Olympic holding period yeah. were horrible. It was yeah. almost unsurfable. Yeah. Um, do you anticipate and I know we're just kind of riffing. I know you don't have any deeper insight than I do perhaps about this, but do you anticipate the wave pools coming online for the Olympic games, either in Japan or in Paris? So a little known story is wave garden was heavily involved in getting surfing uh, into the sort of a part of that process of getting surfing accepted into the Olympics. And Fernando Josema's brother, actually went to Japan with the, uh, the World Surfing Association, Fernando Aguirre, uh, to present the idea of surfing in the Japan Olympics. And a wave garden lagoon was just there as an appendix in the background to say, hey, we don't know what you want to do. Of course, if you want to run the Olympics in the, in the sea, you can. But, you know, you could still run surfing in Japan in an artificial lagoon and hey this is what a wave garden it was the foil technology and all of that this is what it would look like so we sort of feel that we had some involvement in that process but very quickly they said no 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 we want to do it in the ocean and the same for paris actually that decision's already been taken that it's going to happen in the ocean so um i think it's possible uh, perhaps in the future and then i guess it comes down to well what technology gives you the best type of experience? Do you want to use something like Kelly's and what, where you have, you know, a wave every four or five minutes and yes, it's a great wave and it's a long wave, but is there enough variety in that wave? Or do you want to use it in, in either a, uh, a modular system like the Cove or a pneumatic system like Surflock or something like that, where you can really surprise the surfer because they don't know what wave is coming up. They're paddling and taking off and not sure, is this the barrel wave or is this the aerial wave or this is a turns wave? And you can put it on a random setting and maybe, and also, you know, two way, we went from two waves every two minutes in inland to two waves every eight seconds in a cove. I mean, that was just a giant step forward and and that you know really that's transformed the whole economic viability capacity you know we're now getting 88 surfers in our lagoon at the same time 40 good surfers out the back catching 20 on each side catching the big reef what we call the reef waves and then we've got about 48 beginners and improvers in these big bays catching the white water and the small open face green waves so that transformed the whole viability but getting back to the olympics i think it's a possibility um it depends where where they go um but the, i think the preference is always will be the ocean if there is an ocean that will always be a preference and that i can understand that as well yeah and that that sort of brings us to this concept of um reinventing or replicating the ocean experience and i'm thinking of the new installation in switzerland um 
you know, how important is it to, to sort of, for lack of sounding, well, for sounding rather trite, but, you know, to have sand and to have palm trees and to have the, you know, aloha, you know. You know no, no, no. Great question. Great because, question. because Switzerland, in my opinion, Switzerland, the beauty of Switzerland is those mountains yeah. and no, the no, fact no, that no. I'm actually in a ski culture and I love this, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's a, that's a brilliant question because uh, we have built up a design team. We have now five architects and every project we think about the look and feel or the what we call the look and feel. We think about the overall destination, where it's located, and therefore, what are the other uh, leisure activities and facilities we should have around the lagoon? And what's the overall environment look like? So, for example, Switzerland, it is, hey, it's the backdrop is there. Whereas our project in Brazil that's going to open this summer is going to be amazing in terms of creating almost a one kilometer beach uh, with the palm trees, with, the, you know, the crystal clear paradise oasis experience. And then another project in Yakima, you know, Yakima and Washington State up uh -huh. in uh, uh, that's sort of well known for um, wine, wine country and, and making beer. It's sort of one of the I think it's the biggest exporter of hops in the world. OK, and we have a project there in the mountainside overlooking. But the whole look and feel is around barns and winery and rustic and rural and so on. And we're having discussions uh, just today. We're having discussions with one of our, someone that you know, probably Doug, Doug Shears. And uh, yeah, we're working on, he's delivering the Coachella project in, in uh, Desert Surf. They're looking at other projects and we're thinking about a very different sort of look and feel because it should fit within the, the sort of the, the locality and, and the wider environmental context i think so we have lots of different business models and and so on and, and we love we really enjoy that aspect of it so we're not just about supplying the technology we really get heavily engaged in the entire surf park master plan we actually do the first with first draft of the master plan and we get heavily engaged in the whole experience and we have these ideas of the sunrise beach and the sunset beach the sunrise beach is for families with young children swimming pools and playgrounds and the uh, restaurant hangout chill the sunset beach is where we have the teenagers and the young adults and maybe there's a the skate maybe there's a nice uh, hot tub there's a bar there's a dj there's beach volleyball you know it's really quite fun you can be quite creative and create different experiences in different uh, in different locations well, the problem is if one of us from the Sunset Beach wakes up on the Sunrise Beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, with lighting now, we have a full lighting, uh, we have a full lighting uh, system that we've delivered in Alaya in Switzerland. And uh, we're talking to some of our partners who get very excited and they go, yeah, we're going to operate 24 hours. And we go, well, actually, hold on. We, we should stop for a few hours at least. And we need want to clean the lagoon. We need to take the sand out. We need to make sure everything, you know. But yeah, there will be people that are looking at the idea. We're going to run 18 hours. We're going to run 20 hours a day if we're in the right environment. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the desert here in Southern California. Mm. Uh, there's four projects that I know of. Um, there's Coral Springs, which I believe is Kelly's. And then oh, there's Mountain. Coral Mountain. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Coral yeah. Mountain. There's the Thermal Beach Club, which I'm mm -hmm. not sure where that is. Um, there's uh, Desert DSRT. Yeah. 
That's okay, so project, yeah. and then there's one other one that that is being built into a, a water park that already exists. And uh, I think, Pan Spring Surf Club. That's with Tom. Tom that's Lockfeld's. Tom Lockfeld's. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got three um, of these technologies, uh, or three different companies, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a fourth one on this Thermal Beach Club. So tell me a little bit about what you think about the landscape in Southern California regarding specifically the Palm Springs area yeah. and uh, and others. Yeah, so uh, so in my previous life, I advised on all types of leisure development, and I think what's important to remember here that a surf, a surf club, a surf park is what you would describe as a low volume, high value experience. It's not like a water park or a theme park where you need to get a million visitors a year, or a theme park two or three million visitors a year through the facility to make it financially viable. In our economic plans and with our really low operational costs, if we can get 100,000 surfers through our facility in a year by purchasing 150,000 hours of surf in 12 months, we're making a really good return on investment. So when you hear, oh my God, four different surf parks all competing, it's actually not a lot of surfers that you need to attract or surf visits that you need to attract to each of these facilities potentially. And also we have the highest capacity. So I imagine even somewhere like Kelly's will have a much lower capacity. It'll be what, four or five people an hour, I assume can surf or something like that. And yeah. So they won't need to attract a lot of people to make that work. And also the final thing, and it's, it is quite important. There are different business models. Exactly for yeah. surf parks and we have all of those models at the moment in different shapes of and, and stages of development so you have something like um, coral mountain which i understand primarily is a residential resort and hospitality business model right so the very people living in that resort and staying there are going to be make up 90 to 100 percent of the people using that facility so yeah they're not competing with anyone, really. Right, right. Then you have somewhere like uh, Melbourne or our project in Melbourne or Bristol, which is, hey, this is a public park open to absolutely anyone. You book in advance, you come, you pay, you surf, you have a great time. And then you have other things you have. Well, maybe it's some private membership plus open to the public. So, for example, Desert Surf, our project there, that's going to have some residential, some hotel so there'll be some memberships, uh, there'll be general public. It's going to have a mix of everything. And so the actual numbers of people that you're competing for from the general public may well not be that high. And therefore, I'm quite confident that there is certainly room in that location for a number of surf parks. And all of them can potentially be successful. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating um seen there as as covid's opening up here the the pandemic's lifting up and it feels like people are starting to get things moving is that the sense that you get with the um how do you is it dsrt or what's the exact phrase desert surf just Surf. is that your sense that desert surf like that things are moving forward uh, finally yeah yeah so i mean we have we have five projects that are open okay or delivered and, and operational we have actually six, if you include our headquarters, because we have a facility that's been running here now for five years. We have three currently under construction. And, and then we have one in what we call pre-construction, and that's Coachella. So actually, Coachella is ready to go. And if I were a betting man, I would say it's 90% this project will happen. Right. Um, 
we're delivering, we're working on the construction, uh, construction drawings and all of that. So we're very confident that that project will happen and potentially be our first in the US. And then I think very quickly we'll shift to the East Coast and we'll be delivering Myrtle Beach and Virginia Beach. We hope quite quickly after that. And then we have, we have Florida, we have Yakima, we have Vancouver, we have Hawaii wow. uh, and a number of other projects. We wow. have got 41 projects. In addition to those that are open and under construction, we have another 41 projects that are have, have signed contracts and paid significant financial uh, down payments to help them through feasibility uh, phase. Some of those are right at the start. I can give you a scoop, by the way. I haven't told anyone yet. Yes. We've, just, we've just signed six projects in Japan, literally wow. two weeks ago. So wow. yeah, that's amazing. So uh, we have 41 projects in that phase. Some of them are right at the start of this and they're gonna be two years before we start construction. Some of them are right at the end and they're just finalizing the, the final permits, the final fundraising to be able to start construction. So the last few months, since basically November, uh, we have been innovating. In just, I think it's just been crazy. Uh, and we're delighted with how things are going. And with the early videos of Alaya, we're now seeing we can deliver incredibly high quality waves in really small footprints because Alaya is our smallest lagoon to date, whereas Korea was our biggest. And the quality of waves that we can deliver in Alaya is the same as we're delivering in Melbourne because we're actually using the same number of modules, 46 modules. So you're getting a 14 second, 15 second ride. You're getting good barrels, all the whole range of menus in a much smaller lagoon. You just don't have the bays. So you can't have the beginners in the water at the same time as you have the experts in the, in the water. So we're getting a lot of interest in different sizes and shapes of lagoons. And uh, we're, yeah, we're really excited about the future and probably it's unusual for a company to have grown during COVID, but WaveGarden has. So touch wood. That's uh, great. Thank goodness that will, yeah, that will continue. I'm, I'm excited for you and I'm excited for the whole wave pool industry. Um, it, do you get the sense, I, I sort of touched on this, but uh, do you guys, at some point, does it make sense for you guys to create your own industry or are you all still sort of standoffish with each other? Like, like um, not an industry, but an industry association is what I mean. Yeah, where, yeah. Uh, um, well, interestingly, from a sustainability point of view, we're working with the guys, Jess Ponting at the university uh, in San Diego on a, what's called a Stoke certified. So it's a sustainability certification for surf resorts. And they're now working to come up with a certification that will be specifically for surf parks. And obviously we're involved in that process and all of our competitors will be involved in that process. So that, you know, we're coming together, hopefully in that sense, we have the surf park summit where we're coming together and talking, but you know, at the end of the day, I guess each company is trying to, <laughs> trying to be the, the number one. Yeah. And, uh, and so, although there's lots of respect uh, between the companies there's also, Hey, look at our project. We think our ways are better than yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Well, um, I'm looking forward to one day getting wet at a wave garden. Cove yeah, you must. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you must. Cause you surfed Kelly's and Waco. Is that right? Waco and inland and Typhoon uh, okay. Lagoon. So I, okay. I have not experienced the wave garden fun yet. And I really am looking forward to it. 
Yeah, no, no, no. Because honestly, you know, the feedback we're getting, uh, and of course, everybody's going to say this, and of course, yeah. I have to, but the feedback we're getting from everyone, the pros that have, that have surfed everywhere else, they've just said, wow. I mean, yeah, just like, wow. Uh, the, the size of the waves, the length of the waves, the variety of the waves. You know, we had uh, Ziki Lau in, you know, in, I just saw that. in yeah. Alaya in freezing cold three or four degree water saying he's had the best aerials of his life. Yeah. And the best fun, you know, of anywhere. So, yeah, it, it's great. And uh, we're, we're, we all enjoy it and we're very passionate and we're here to stay, we hope. And we want to create a legacy company here in the Basque country in Spain that that's going to be here in 50 years. That's the, that's the idea. Well, I, I sense that that's the case, that Hosama and, and his family and his workers there and you, Sean, are doing a great thing. And I look forward, like I said, I look forward to, to probably surfing um, the wave garden here in the desert, hopefully in a yeah. couple of years. And yeah. um, what's the timeline on that? Do you reckon? It's hard to say. We hope construction will start later this year. And then, so I guess we're looking at 2022, something like that. Um, yeah. Brazil, if you're able to fly down to Sao Paulo, that's opening this summer, although that is a private residential, uh, oh, okay. uh, but you know, they, I, you know, I'm sure there may be ways of getting, you know, they you, might. You can slide me groups. in, right? You'll I don't be know. Able to... <laughs> we should see. I, I, can't, I can't promise anything, but, you know, I'll try. I could try. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, well, Sean, look, if there's anything I can do for you guys at Wave Garden, let me know. Um, I'm a big fan of the whole thing. I always have been. I'm like a little kid when I show up at these places. They're, yeah. It's like going to Disneyland for a surfer, and it's a lot of fun. And and I just want to thank you for spending some time with me this morning and this afternoon in Spain. Yeah, no pleasure. And, you know, thanks for your interest and your, and your support. And it's good that someone like yourself with a background in surfing is, is motivated because, you know, not everyone, not everyone wants these surf parks. I mean, most do, but not everyone does. So it's great that, you, you know, you're really enthusiastic and you have to come and visit and, and surf a cove. Yeah, I really yeah. do. And, and Sean, thanks again. I, I appreciate it. Uh, pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a feeling, a feeling I can't hide. No, no.